All right. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of Dismantling the Ivory Tower podcast. I am Elijah Jine, your host. I'm joined today and every day <laughs> by Dr. Clifford C. Meeks. How you doing, Doc? I'm all right. Uh, I don't know if you're going to be joined by me every day, but uh, every <laughs> single day, every day, no matter where I am. <laughs> you know, I, I do got a day job, too, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, this is a, this is a big episode. Um, actually, we uh, recorded a an interview with Dr. Adrian Bennings, the yeah. president of PCC. We did mm-hmm. that what a couple weeks ago now, but um, we're gonna be segueing to that a little later. That'll be kind of the back half of this episode. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we're excited for everybody to see that. Yeah. Sure. Welcome everyone. Uh, episode two. Um, so excited to continue this endeavor uh, with my fellow student and uh, you know alumnus of the Men of Color Leadership Program, uh, Elijah Yine. And so, um, John, it's John. That's right. I'm, I'm just I, you I'm know gonna I'm get your name right. It's all right. Eventually. It's like <laughs> nobody, nobody gets it. It's like Vine with a J. I was get. Is it Jagney? Is it Jane? Is it? Yeah, I've had some weird pronunciation. Yine is honestly the closest that anybody's ever gotten. So, you know. I'm still not going to take that as a compliment, brother. Because <laughs> you know where I stand with names. Names, yeah, names, fair enough. names are important. So, you know, if I'm not getting it right, I'm a, you, I don't have to tell you that. I've already told you this. But if I'm not getting it right, I need to be, then please don't hesitate to correct me. So, right. Um, but no, definitely welcome to our audience, the uh, second episode of the podcast. And as you said, we had a great interview with uh, Dr. Bennings, uh, who for our audience, uh, for context for our audience, is the uh, new, pre- still fairly new president uh, here at Portland Community College. Um, she just came on in July, and so she's uh, kind of hit the ground running, as they say, um, but so far... Um, uh, at least from the conversation we have with her, it appeared that you know she's acclimating pretty well to not just the environment here at PCC, but also uh, just Portland in general. So I think um, you know I think when our audience hears that interview, um, they'll get more context as to who she is. Um, but I think also more importantly, it was interesting to um, <coughs> determine what her own definition of the ivory tower is. Absolutely. And uh, I think we're going to expand upon that a little bit today because we went over it last episode, but uh, I think you had some more you wanted to share as well, yeah? Yeah, I I think one of the things, and I mean, you know, having, <coughs> having been in the program and, uh, you know, sharing with you and the rest of your cohort some of my own background, you know, I, I consider myself a bit of an amateur, amateur historian. And so... Um, I like to kind of look into the context of things and sure. how things came about. And so, you know, after we did the first episode, um, and just in general, we were developed when we were brainstorming on this endeavor, you know, the ivory tower is a phrase that I've always heard. And it seems like many people have heard. Um, but as we started you know, putting, manifesting this into the reality, you know, questions started coming up with, okay, so where did this phrase even come from? Yeah, what is it? What does it mean? (laughs) Like, how how did this even come about? And is it, is it something that like, is the ivory tower specifically like speaking about academia? Right. Yeah. You know, like I've had, that was actually a question I got. It was like, is ivory tower, does that, could that be all kinds of parts of society? Is that just academia? Like, so there is a little bit, I think of confusion just on what that is in the general sphere so I think it's important to uh kind of elaborate upon that yeah yeah and I and, uh, I did I'm, a, I'm gonna forward you on this article I came across by uh Stephen Shapin mm-hmm. uh who is a professor of uh history at, uh, history of science at uh, Harvard University okay. he actually wrote an uh, article uh titled the ivory tower the history of a figure of speech and its cultural uses oh interesting yeah and uh I've been <clears throat> You know, I've been dismantling the article, <laughs> pun intended. So I've been dismantling his article, but it's it's very fascinating that he starts out by saying, like, there never was this 
ivory tower in terms of like a literal right a physical a representation physical representation sure. you know and 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 he and the very next sentence in the in uh, at the start of his article is it was always a figure of speech and so that's essentially what we are you know uh uh dismantling or even uh, unpacking it's this, an idea yeah this idea or this figure of speech but as i've read through a good portion of the article i still have a few uh pages left but that figure of speech has morphed over time you know and 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 for me you know he starts back to uh, you know period of antiquity um, he even cites uh, some uh, biblical references, not necessarily to like an ivory tower, but I remember growing up learning about the Tower of Babel and mm. how that was something built to uh, house knowledge. Is that right? Well, house knowledge, but also kind of a way to try and travel up to the heavens, mm. if you will. And you know, um, and it was interesting, you know, how even in that period, like towers were designed and I'm, and I'm kind of paraphrasing some of his text, but towers, at least in periods of antiquity were designed as these mountains, man-made mountains, if you want to call it that kind of reaching up into the heavens, reaching up into, um, you know, what some might, con what some might call the imaginative or the creative okay. space. Um, you know, and, and, and kind of a way <clears throat> of, you know, being in space that allows one to disengage, mm. you know, from what's perceived as the reality. Sure. And, and from there, I've just been like, wow, okay, you know, contrasting that, just contrasting that part to our own, and when I say our, my references and your references, because ours, our, both of our references are a little similar yeah, in the sure. context of academia, mm -hmm. you know, um, trans juxtaposing his, just the an antiquity, you know, the antiquated, um, you know, context with our modern day context. To me, it's already exposing oh, wow, the way it was thought about back then and the way it's thought about now is like on opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And so and so it's, uh, it's kind of fascinating as, as I'm continuing to unpack this as to, to learn how the figure of speech, quote-unquote, the ivory tower, as a figure of speech has morphed over the years. Um, and it really came to more prominence, excuse me, more so in the 20s and the 30s, um, you know, and it wasn't even associated with academia. Okay. Honestly, I, yeah, I didn't know that. Expand upon that because I'm interested to know, like, where did it come from? What was it talking about? Yeah, it was actually, at least according to uh, Professor Shapin, you know, it started out as, um, you know, it, it started out as a way to, uh really in the in the realm of art okay um and literature you know the arts and literature and it was kind of this um space where um i guess and and i'm definitely going off of his text mm -hmm. but it's it, i am interpreting it as a space where one went to contemplate and then produce, you know, the art. Mm. And so, but what kept coming up for me was this, what it was perceived as a, as a bit of a negative connotation because the ivory tower, and, and here's what I mean, Elijah, uh, it, the reason why I'm perceiving it as a negative connotation is because it was, at least in this antiquated context, the ivory tower was perceived as a way for one to disengage from the reality and not kind of deal with the with 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 the 
reality of struggle, mm. with the reality of so you you kind of sitting up day. in your ivory tower. You got all the cares. Yeah, you don't care about them anymore. It's like you're you're up in your tower. Nothing else matters. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You're kind of sitting up there, and you're not really worried about the struggles of your fellow human uh, humankind. Maybe even know? looking down on them it, from your to some extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I even got that connotation as well. It's mm. like oh wow, you know, in some sense, this ivory tower is one in which. Folks are peering over and saying, oh, that's what y'all are dealing with? Yeah, okay, right. I'll check in with y'all later yeah, on. Yeah, So, And it's interesting because I think that almost even ties into our modern day. We kind of have these, nowadays it's not an ivory tower, it's a skyscraper, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's, yeah, but, but it yeah. is like in a non-academia you know, academia setting, mm-hmm. that ivory tower is a skyscraper. And there are people who are looking down and... And up there, no cares, and it's it's very much like up in the penthouse, you know, um, New York City. I think <laughs> that's kind of that's a real thing though um, that that exists now, um, and and then I guess as well. Yeah, yeah, and so I think you know having you know the other context. I think I, I I've I've been getting as I'm continuing to read, and in some instances reread certain passages, is that. You know, here it is. You have one who retreats to their ivory tower, mm-hmm. and you know. But more importantly, okay, once they say they come out of it, and yeah, they, they they choose to reengage, you know, with society. Mm-hmm. Um, then, what is the product? You know, and again, we're speaking in terms of like again, this was used primarily in a literal, uh, in literary circles and artistic circles. So, that what is the product that's being produced, mm-hmm. and is that, and is that relevant, and cogent to the society's current reality? Sure. And so, oftentimes, it was. You know, I, I think that was. I think largely that's up for debate. Mm-hmm. But, like, again, the perception I got was that it's it's not, you know, the, the product was not anywhere near what the reality was for the people, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and, and in some instances, you know, we can kind of see that in today's context. If we take it out of the realm of academia, mm-hmm. what we see happening is certain folks, you know, uh, who've been you know, deemed with a certain sense of uh, representation, you know, to deemed to represent, you know, communities and populations. Large swaths of people. Yeah, large swaths of people, but the, the agenda is different from the communities that they're representing. Right, and I think a lot of that is because if you're in, up in your ivory tower, you're not, I- you're not in the community. Right. Right, you're so, so you're coming from a place of privilege and ignorance and then you come out of that and you are completely disconnected from what's going on yeah. um, and what's happening to your fellow man. And I think that, uh, you know, highlights sort of maybe what the ivory tower represents, which is, well, in my eyes, right, the ivory tower is, it's knowledge, but it's also, well, my initial kind of idea of what the ivory tower was, was like, th- all right, so there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's this um you know like the you were saying the tower of babel was that not a library was it or no okay no, um, i'm not super familiar i'm honestly i'm not super familiar but when i thought of it i thought of like a huge like a library with yeah. all this not like books and mm-hmm, you know all mm-hmm. this stuff and to dismantle it when i thought of that i thought of like letting all that knowledge out spill out to the people right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um I'm not sure if that's necessarily the context. It sounds like maybe it wasn't necessarily what it meant initially, uh, but that's kind of what it's come to mean to me. But it's it's interesting because this is kind of challenging that for me. Yeah, and I mean, and again, I think too for our audience' sake, it's it's fine for us to have this conversation. I mean, that's part of the reason why we're having a podcast, you know, around this concept because in some instances. What's even coming up for me is, <clears throat> okay, I've been hit with this negative representation of the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I, as I'm peering through Professor Shapin's text, I'm like, okay, but is there any, is there any level? Is this ever a positive? 
Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Is there right. ever a positive spin, or is or are there is there ever someone defending the need for an ivory tower? An ivory tower, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, it does. And and it, and because to me, it even us talking about its antiquated definition versus the modern day and juxtaposing that with the modern day, we're already seeing it. It's <laughs> as as a as some some folks would say, it's already complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot, right? There is a lot to unpack. But I think that's what's the beauty of our podcast mm-hmm. endeavor here is let's unpack that and let's let, let's unpack that in the multiple way, primarily through the lens of academia. Sure. At the same time, we also need to look at it from the lens of society as a whole. Yeah. Let's look at it from the lens of society as a whole, because to me, you know, the the, the two uh, interplay with one another, you know, right. and 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 I'm I'm already wondering, you know, particularly in the context of academia and, and particularly in the ter- context of college, you mm-hmm. know, higher education, uh, as is generally termed, you know, how how is this? How is this going to unravel itself? You yeah. know, and you know, how does this, how does this term, this figure of speech, um, juxtapose in the context of higher education? How does it interplay with social justice? How does it interplay with, you know, um, uh, um, you know, certain forms of identity? that mm-hmm. we've been talking about in class. Heck, how does it even interplay with, you know, you can even go so far as, say, political ideology. Right. Regardless if you identify as liberal, conservative, regardless of what you identify as, you know, how does it interplay with all of these notions that make up our society but also make us make us up individually mm-hmm. as well? Right. So, um <clears throat> still unpacking that but i also think too it's also a great question to ask all of our each of our guests like yeah what's what does it mean own, to you yeah, yeah what is our own definition because you know in some i feel like in a lot of ways no matter what is said we'll be able to find some snippets of similarity but Definitely. also some snippets of uh contrast because it's up for interpretation Exactly. It is. So, yeah, so it's definitely, you know, I feel like everybody can bring something new to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because we're here to, I mean, the ivory tower being the figure of speech that it is, is really representative of a bunch of systems. It's yeah. really comprised of all these different systems and different people with different identities are affected by these systems in different ways. And so, when they talk about dismantling the ivory tower, they might be talking about dismantling a different part of it mm-hmm. than, than we mm-hmm. are usually. Um, or they, they just might bring something to it that we wouldn't have uh, maybe thought of coming from our backgrounds. Right. right? Um, and so I think that would be, that would be important to uh, definitely keep expanding upon. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I like, I like the, I like the um, analogy or the metaphor you kind of use in the sense of, you know, in some respects, it's almost as if, you know, you could even say the ivory tower is made up of different rungs. You know, you were mentioning systems of oppression and, you know, the tower itself could be these different rungs of oppression. You mm-hmm. know, you know, whether it doesn't matter which one is necessarily at the base or at the top. It's just all these rungs. And so some folks might be focusing on this one level and other folks might be focusing on the level of beneath it and the level above it mm-hmm. but if if you look at it i guess from a from a broader context everyone's trying to dismantle yeah. it at the same time right right you know which is what is necessary you know and even from a you know even from the context of critical race theory mm-hmm. it's like dismantling one aspect of systemic oppression is not going to dismantle the whole thing you no it, it's a collaborative process yeah, Every, yeah. like you said everybody's got to be dismantling their own part yeah yeah you can't just you can't just 
you know, eradicate racism and then think sexism and yeah. <laughs> homophobia and, <laughs> yeah. all, you know, all uh, classism are going to go away. That's not, that's not how this works. So, no, not at all. <laughs> you and know, so you have to, you have to sort of attack different points. Exactly. Exactly. Cause they all interplay with one another. Absolutely. So, so yeah, but no, I, I, I think this is going to be a pretty fascinating read and, you know, if you're okay with it, I think maybe if we can just continue to unpack this particular text, uh, and I actually want to get your thoughts because I just started. Like, yeah, I've re- I haven't read so, that. I haven't read that yet. So yeah, I just started. So yeah. um, I was just kind of like I say, just doing a Google search, just trying to see well, what what is some context here, mm-hmm. and so I think it's a great way for us to also provide some additional context to our audience, also. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I think at this point we are going to segue into our interview with Dr. Adrian Bennings, president of PCC. Um, it was a great interview. We uh, really proud of that one. So, uh, yeah. Anything you want to say before we uh, dip out of here? Not. Nah, nah, I think I think uh, folks will get to know a little bit more about who she is and, you know, her intentions uh, at this uh, institution. And um, you know, I think I think people are going to. I know for us, you know, I'm I'm excited to hopefully invite her back. Oh, definitely. So. Yeah, definitely. I think we definitely would like to have her back. But uh, yeah, enjoy, guys. Here we go. Well, um, thank you so much, Dr. Bennings, for coming. Um, it's so great to have you on the show. Uh, and we're just gonna jump right into the questions because I know we don't have a ton of time. So the first question I want to ask you is sort of. How would you describe your origin story and and whatever that means to you? Could you just kind of give us some of your background? Goodness, my origin story. I like the way you shaped that question. Um, I think it's important to talk about a little bit of where I come from in terms of family and experiences growing up because that has really shaped um, who I am today and continues to shape, you know, who I am. Um, So I uh, grew up in a military Christian home and I was the middle child. I think that right there is a beautiful mix of kind of you can infer some things that have <laughs> so, yeah. come to be because of that. Um, you know, <clears throat> my father was military Air Force, and so my home was uh, really structured in a sense of having things a certain way. My dad really brought that military background into the home in terms of not just the structure, but the organization and the routine. Mm. And uh, growing up, that was really hard for me. Um, But I think it's important to share in terms of my origin because that has translated um, at one point in my time, uh, my life into an unhealthy way of just having to have everything a certain way. And so if you ever hear me speak, I say I'm a recovering type A. (laughs) I don't know if you ever fully recover. And um, excuse me. With type A personalities, it's like you have to have every I dotted and T crossed. You have Mm. to know what's going to happen from here to next. So I learned very hard uh, in life growing up that that's not the way life happens. But that was a part of my origin story and growing up and shaping who I was. Um, The other part of the dynamic is... um, I did grow up in a home as a PK, and for those who may not know, uh, I am a preacher's kid, and that came with pressures and expectations and judgments and just a lens of criticism and observation that, as a preacher's kid, um, you know, was something that really heightened my awareness about who I was and behaviors I was able to do or not do. The third factor of my origin story is the middle child, and Um, I was a middle child. My uh, older sister is a year older than me. My baby brother is five years uh, younger than me, and that really disrupted my world because I was the baby, (laughs) and I thought I was the baby. So I had to settle for being the baby girl, and that led me to really, uh, growing up, seek attention, become a, a daddy's girl, but also to stand out from my siblings, and um, that led for me to go into competition athletics you know and that shaped that role and that journey and athletics <coughs> has been core to who I am um, today in terms of just having that discipline and that competitive drive but also I had to navigate that as a part of my journey in terms of you know the greatest competition is yourself right and I had to shift and even in this professional realm have to shift from competing not for the performance of people, but competing for the performance of bettering myself mm-hmm. because there's so much of myself that I have to give to others. So that's a snippet of my origin story. Yeah, no, thank you. That was very, very in-depth. I appreciate it. Um, well, 
before we uh, actually, Dr. Meeks, I think I'm going to take this next question as well um, because this is one I, I formulated. Uh, this is this is just something I was sort of curious about as I was doing a little bit of background um, on you in preparation for this podcast. Um, I, I saw that you spent a lot of time at Texas Tech. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask what made you decide to shift your focus from working at, you know, a large institution like Texas Tech to working at the community college level? <coughs> and how have you adjusted to that? Wow. Well, Texas Tech is near and dear to me. So um, as you may know, and, and through your own experiences, life sometimes has a way of causing you to realign and shift and move forward from one chapter or one season to the next. And so Texas Tech was instrumental for me at a time where when I became uh, a single mom and I, at the time I was doing professional track and field, I ended up moving back home and um, pretty much started my journey in higher education at Texas Tech University, eventually starting really full-time as a secretary. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, I had my bachelor's. You know, I had already graduated college and had some time out on my own. But the journey involved me finding myself but discovering um, some potential within me to create a career pathway um, that has brought me here today. But also the grounding factor in that journey at Texas Tech was because of my daughter. I knew that there was um, a future I would have to create that would be something that was sustainable. But I also wanted to model the way of growth and show her, but also show myself that as a black woman in higher education, I could I could be successful. So once my daughter, that journey was lasted for several years. I had several iterations of promotions and advancement. But what caused me to shift from a four-year to a two-year college, starting with Clovis Community College in New Mexico, um, I was at another point in time where my daughter, I did not want to move out of the state until my daughter had graduated high school and I had a stepson and he had already graduated. And I knew that that was going to be my trigger to now explore opportunities outside of Texas Tech. Um, and outside of Texas, um, primarily because there were, in my mind, limited opportunities uh, that I felt um, because I was a black female and could only go so far at the institution. But also I saw that and recognized that there was um, a timing uh, and a shift of realigning who I was outside of my comfort zones. So I shifted to a community college. Uh, community college is near and dear to me because during the scope of my career, I started um, college at the age of 16 and I got kicked wow. out the first semester. I was at Texas A&M <laughs> and I was like, college, woo, yeah, this is it. <laughs> what, you gotta study, you gotta go to class? And so I got kicked out and uh, community college was my saving grace. I went to Odessa Junior okay. College. Oh, okay. wow. And yeah. so I, I, prior to working in a community college, I had a personal connection to a community college mm. because there was an opportunity for me when I thought I didn't have any other options. And so communi uh, Clovis Community College came into the picture and I was a vice president. And I was like, this is the competition stuff. I was like, you know what? I could be over at college. There's some things that I feel I could pour into every person that comes across the doorways of a community college, and I could shape that in a way that's positive, that's empowering, but also a way that's uplifting and open and just do it through kindness and love. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I then shifted further into community colleges as a president uh, with my first presidency at Kellogg Community College in Battle Creek, Michigan. I love that. That's, I'm sure, very encouraging for any listeners we might have who, you know, are coming into the community college space right. and, and might, you know, feel similar to how you did and look at where you're at now. That's really amazing. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Meese, is there anything? No, I'm I'm just kind of mapping the connections I had, the, the Texas connection. I'm definitely interested in exploring Um because uh, I went to school there myself. I went to Prairie View. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, and I, I told the students, I'm like, that was five of the best years of my life. <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, but I knew I needed to get out. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> I would have. <laughs> but, um, but no, just look, you know, just mapping out the similarities mm -hmm. and just tracking your journey and how inspiring it already is just from what you've shared in the few minutes that you've been with us. Yeah. Um, I think a uh, question that I would like to ask is, you know, based on <clears throat> your origin story and the lived experiences you've shared with us, you know, how has that, how do you believe that's enabled you to better serve students of color as well as underrepresented students from other marginalized communities? Sure. I think 
First, it's important to recognize that I had to come through a process of um, discovering who I was as a black woman, but also not being, uh, not limiting myself because there was a point in time I did as a victim mentality in terms of the stereotypes or how people viewed me because of what they saw on the outside. Right. And so I see myself being able to have, I would say, some principles of growth and development through being a person of color coming up in whether that's higher education or any professional realm or any any place in, in this society nationally, bartending, restaurant, mm-hmm. athletics, whatever that may look like. My lived experiences, I believe, help shape others and help contribute to my ability to do so from the standpoint that um, I recognize each and every person as a human just as myself, right? Mm. And, you know, <coughs> I've been in spaces where people have said to me, I don't see color, but I'm like, how can you? <laughs> right, you, right. That's, that doesn't or exist. Or I have black friends. friends yep. And um, and I had a boss who said, um, I supervise, I work with black people. And it, it was, it's, it, so I, I have these experiences where I believe it's important first and foremost to see the whole person. Absolutely. Mm. And everyone that comes across my presence or everyone, even when I'm out in the grocery store, I just, this is just my mentality. I look at people and I say they're so precious because there's a purpose in them, whether or not they realize it. And because someone poured into me or because someone created an opportunity and because I was able to understand and recognize who I was and the power that I have within me to pour out and influence and create change and dismantle Mm -hmm. uh, stereotypes and structures, that person has that same power and capability and they just they, they just might need that oomph. They just might need that coach. They just might need that someone who believes <clears> in him or who speaks the positive word. That's how I see myself through my own lived experiences is really modeling, but also really through my words and my actions, uh, being a, a positive but uh, and transformative influencer in such a way that by the time someone leaves my presence or by the time I leave an organization or institution, it's not better because I was just there. It's better because I dismantled some structures and some systems and I created a space. And I'll go back to this in love and in kindness. Right. And that's what's missing in our world. If you do it out of love, do what you do out of love. If you see people in love, whether or not you agree with them, that'll dismantle so many um, uh, biases, so many um uh, systems of hate and mm-hmm. and racism and even our own personal biases because even absolutely. as a personal Everyone person of color has you have those biases. right i'm absolutely. black i don't have any no, no you do yeah. right? <laughs> right okay we all so, do. Right. so anyway right. that's how i see myself through my lived experiences shaping others or really creating um uh, a transformative impact in the spaces that i step into no, that's very yeah. powerful um you know and i definitely appreciate that response because uh, you know i think Oftentimes, one's lived experiences, it's hard to, um, it's easy to overlook them and to go back and reflect and pull them to the present. So so they become a bit of a superpower Mm -hmm. to help you be, as you stated, that that transformative influencer, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and recognizing that, you know, your own lived experiences help shape the identities that you hold, <clears throat> um, you know, in order to, as you said, and so eloquently stated, so to see the humanity within the others, mm-hmm. you know, and I definitely appreciate how you keep going back to the concept of <clears throat> love and kindness because, it, you know, that kind of leads and in, 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 in dismantling out of that context because that leads to the next question. You know, the title of this podcast is Dismantling the Ivory Tower. You know, and as you stated before we started recording, you know, this this can be have some level of sensitivity. You know, folks can kind of get all offended and whatnot and into their feelings. And and that's fine. That that if that happens, that happens. But I think, you know, to remind our audience that Things like this, things like this podcast, things like the civil rights movement or, you know, um, you know, other movements that have instituted change were done out of love 
and out of promoting this country to be better. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and to me, at least from my own family dynamic, mm -hmm. that's what's done. You, you, you want somebody to be better because you love them. Right. Now, granted, you know, you know, the nuances is up to them if they, it goes both ways. Right. It goes both ways. You know, you got to do some work, but, yeah. but you know, for the most part though, that's, I, I really appreciate how you come back to that. And so here you are sitting with myself and Elijah on this podcast titled dismantling the ivory tower. And so, you know, one of the one of the first questions we, we formulated was, well, what's Dr. Benny's concept then around the whole ivory tower and what or how are some ways she would maybe suggest in the dismantlement of that? So that's that's our next question to you. That's a very good question. Um, and the topic is very, very fitting um, for this time and day and age. I, I would start with, you know, when you... When I, <laughs> let me change that. When I think about the ivory tower, I think about, you ha You can't think about the ivory tower without bringing into the context the history mm -hmm. of the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. and Historical I, connotations. Exactly. And I think, well, I know that, um, you know, the ivory tower was not created for mm. people of color. The ivory tower was not even created for the empowerment of people of color. The ivory tower was created as a system of privilege um, and an advancement of a people who don't look like us, right, who right. at the time, um, you know, it was deemed, you know, superior to have access to knowledge and access to education, and it was only available to those who were privileged to have it. So I think just kind of shaping it in that historical context, because I started, uh, and this is a part of this context, I became president, first time president of Kellogg Community College in 2020. And in 2020, I was the first ever person of color mm. in this position. I was the first black and I was the first ever female to hold a presidency at the college. Mm. Now, thinking about that, you also have to think about all the other positions and realms and spaces and spheres of influence that we, as in people of color or even black females, are the first in this day and age. Right. That's because of the historical systems that have been set up. And so when you talk about dismantling, um, there first has to be a, a self-awareness of, for me, it had to be a self-awareness of myself as an individual to know that even though the system wasn't set up for me initially, even though there were still relevant structures in place that limited my ability to advance or impact because of who I was or what I looked like, I had to shift and become aware that, no, I'm not a victim in this system. I'm a disruptor in this system. Mm, yep. So I call myself, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a disruptor, right? And you've <laughs> got to be willing to disrupt through um, disrupt systems uh, in terms of where you may not have normally been welcome or they may not normally have been created for you. And that's what I do. So when you talk about dismantling, like tearing down, mm -hmm. one of the key things you have to keep in mind is you, you have to get to the foundation and the root of it or else you're just building on the same foundation without dismantling the system. And, the, you know, you're just changing, remodeling some walls here or there. Exactly. Right. Right. So the ivory tower was not a space created for black women. It was prim primarily a space where dominated by white white males mm -hmm. um, who not only led institutions but ensured that those systems and structures were in place to their advancement and their benefit, right? right, right. And that still is very relevant today. today. Mm -hmm. I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. And so the self-awareness was one way. I You have to start with yourself and going into a space and knowing that you can dismantle these systems and these structures, but you can't go in as a victim. And I couldn't go in as a woe is me or I, I always am in this place because I'm black. Right, because we as black people, we, we can yeah. focus on that victim mentality in terms of that aspect. But when you start to shift it individually and then collectively, I think that's where you have the greatest opportunity to um, tear down those strongholds and the, dismantle those systems. So the self-awareness was one. The other way that dismantling, in my experience and mine, needs to happen and is happening is because now that I'm in these spaces, you know, we... 
there was this trendy topic, and it's trendy. I call it trendy because we use diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's a trend, like, oh, we're doing diversity, equity, and inclusion. <laughs> and and I look at it this way. I'm just going to give you some Dr. B-ism. Okay. One of my Dr. B-ism is if we look at creating systems where everyone has the same opportunity and the access and the support that they need conducive to their individual success – you don't need diversity, equity, inclusion as something separate. It becomes something that is in, embodied and encompassed in all that you do in policy and practice and structure. However, there is a need, though, because coming up in the educational system as a black female, even in community colleges, I didn't see anyone who looked like me. Right. I didn't see anyone who I could relate to. And even I had a conversation with the student um, at a luncheon the other day, even in terms of counseling and support. I didn't see anyone I could go to because I didn't think that someone white or someone who didn't look like me or someone who wasn't a black female could relate to what I was sharing and properly inform me and guide me as a black female. So there's there's that piece, diversity, equity, inclusion being embedded, but also having that representation because it's important to our students. It's important. It, it was important for me. I didn't see very many of me, right, you know, right. in the president's role. And so I I felt that I had to really, uh, I had to work just as hard, uh, even harder to do. And even being in this role, not just at PCC, there are different pressures and expectations that come with being a black female in this role. And you can perceive, because I have, I perceive that at times you can be held to a higher standard because the standards weren't set for you anyway. Mm-hmm. And so you, there's a greater expectation. So I kind of went around, you know, I talked about self-awareness. I talked about the, the DEI piece, but I also talked about the representation because rep- representation is so critical, even for me now, even for our students. And, you know, even when my daughter was coming up in college, you know, she needed to see a black female in terms of counselor or advisor or someone that she could relate to because look at our um, hospital systems and some of those stories you hear about um, pregnant black women who don't get the proper treatment they deserve and have have died you know we've we've got to pour into our communities of color we've got to pour into um, you know our, our 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 populations that you know, can be disadvantaged even in the current systems. So the ivory tower is, you know, when you talk about it in higher education, there's this ivory tower effect that's in politics. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been to several capitals and advocacy day and Washington DC and different States. And you go in and you see a historical picture of those members who served. And for the longest, you, you, you see white males hanging up on the walls in terms of picture. They are the ones who said, the policies and the practices and the educational standards long, long, long time ago. And those are some of the systems that need to be dismantled because they weren't right. created for us. Right. So anyway, that's my long answer. Oh, it was a great answer. Great. Yeah. 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 Really good answer. Yeah. Um, you kind of already touched on this, this next question actually in your, in your last answer, but I am going to ask it anyways, just in case you'd like Therefore. to elaborate on any of it. Um, so you, you talked about uh, justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and how you know you you feel that integrating all of that into every part of schooling is important. How else are you prioritizing belonging, justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion to support the learning experience of all students at PCC? So I think it's important to note that um, coming into a new environment as a new president, still within her first year, <laughs> um, it's important <coughs> for me to continue to get that understanding in context of the current environment. So I'm doing a part of that to understand the dynamic and also understand where we may, which I would, uh, I'm just going to step out and say that I'm going to make the assumption that there are some gaps in terms of um, our efforts to really uh, align with diversity and equity and inclusion uh, for our students. Uh, So the understanding piece is critical for me and that's primarily where I'm operating at right now. However, that being said, one of the ways too is looking at within our, so my focus right now primarily as well as operations and administration. Where in our policies, where in our practices, um, do we need to reassess through an equity lens in terms of what's in place that may have a disparate impact for specific populations, underrepresented populations, but also <coughs> where in our systems and across the 
the campuses, the district, uh, college-wide, um, do we need to create those opportunities to bridge, you know, to, to align with equity in, in our students in the classrooms, right? You got classrooms, you got spaces, like right now I'm in the multicultural center. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got even the people that interact with our students. Yep. That's, I, I, that's where, um, <laughs> you know, if, if, if this was videotaped, you'd probably see the faces I'm making, but you have to ensure that the people that are in place also are uh, translating the vision, Mm. translating the principles, and translating the message of equity, diversity, and inclusion um, across all bodies of students that we serve. And uh, sometimes uh, that's not easily done in such an institution so large. So assessing and understanding, but also looking at where we need to make the most immediate changes, but also where uh, can we dive into in terms of really what is the student experience? That's something I need to understand. What is the student experience? especially for our, our, our BIPOC, you know, our black and indi- indigenous people of color. What does that look like? What are we missing? Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. only way to do that <coughs> is creating the spaces to hear from the students. And I have yet to do that, but that's something that I would be open to doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just wanted to speak to, you know, uh, being a student, a BIPOC student mm-hmm. myself, you know, coming here to PCC, um, w- there are some spaces which I feel are really, really important and great. And one of those uh, I just want to shout out is <laughs> Dr. Meek's Men of Color Leadership Program. Already. Already. And, and <laughs> the reason that I'm shouting that out is because last year I was struggling with school. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always had kind of a mm, relationship with school, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but I, I saw an email, you know, or maybe I saw it on the announcements page of PCC that they were recruiting for the Men of Color Leadership Program. And I didn't know anything about it. I didn't, I don't know. But I just, I decided to look into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so, so glad I did because here at PCC, in that program, I found community. I found people who looked like me, mm-hmm. who had experiences like me. Um, the other day I was talking to a brother from the cohort and he comes up and he talks to me about, uh, he's, he's biracial like I am. Mm-hmm. And he talks to me about, he asked me, you know, have you ever felt like you don't belong, uh, you know, white side or black side, you know, either side? And I'm like, no one has ever, ever asked me that before. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah, I have, you know, yeah. and it was just it was cool because it's like I'm not alone, mm-hmm. you know, and it is important to continue creating these spaces mm-hmm. because um, I honestly, if it weren't for that space, I don't know if I'd be here wow. in school yeah. right now. I really don't. Um, I might just be still working at a movie theater and, mm-hmm. and just doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really think that that part is important. And I, I really appreciate that you seem to see the importance in that. Uh, you do see the importance in it. And I, I, I respect that and I appreciate that. And <coughs> I just want to thank you for, for that and thank Dr. Meeks for the opportunity to, uh, <laughs> no, really, really. I, I know you don't, I'm, I, you know, I mean it. So. Anyways, um, that's all. I know we're just about at time. Um, so how much do I owe you for these com- comments here? Uh, <laughs> Fiver here and there, oh, you know, right. like just, right. you know, if you could just up my pay a little bit, that'd be great. No. <laughs> no. Oh, my goodness. No, but um, no, but I mean, Elijah's uh, correct in some respects, Dr. Bennett, and definitely love to talk with you more about. Um, some of the efforts that are taking place in, in not just the multicultural center, but all the resource centers, mm. all the equity-based centers, uh, uh, well, identity-based centers, um, <clears throat> you know, because um, there are some things we're looking at trying to do collectively. And then, you know, of course, each center has its own, you know, respective, you know, uh, programming and uh, activities and events that, are, that they endeavor to do. Um, but I definitely want to say thank you for taking time out of your uh, fantastical busy schedule. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you know, I like how you said that. Yeah, to you know, to spend some time with us yeah. and to just introduce yourself uh, to our audience. So yeah. definitely hope to have you back in the near future. 
Sure. Well, I, I'm excited to join join you all. And um, I was just telling Tia, I was like, oh, I don't want to work today. <laughs> but this made it worthwhile. There's so many things that make it worthwhile. And I certainly want to follow up on the Men of Color program. Yeah. And um, I'm going to have actually Tia reach out to you because I, I do want to bring it up as a spotlight, but also bring it before the board and maybe Elijah invite you to come share your story and success. I would love to. But also learn how this program is impacting, um, you know, um, the outcomes of our students and the experiences you like you spoke to you spoke to belonging and community right but also I hope that maybe I can spend some time maybe with the cohort and talk about what does this mean from you what yeah. what do you see the role of the president in terms of supporting or understanding what is it now that you have my attention that I need to be aware of you mm. know so I want to have some dialogue and we can we can certainly do that because I'm I'm excited I think that would be really awesome and I think the brothers in the cohort would uh, really appreciate that as well. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So thank you once again, Dr. Bennis, yeah. and definitely hope you have a wonderful day. Glad this made it worth it. It <laughs> did. Well, thank you all. And I, I do have to sign off with my, um, you know, I believe that we're all in this together. I'm just one person. You're just one person. But the greatest things can be accomplished as one together, together one. And so that's the way I roll. That's the way I move. And that's my life motto. Awesome. Right. Well, thank you, Dr. Thank Bennings. Awesome. Appreciate your time. <clears throat> right, take care. All right, guys, I hope you guys enjoyed uh, that interview with Dr. Bennings. Really enlightening stuff. Um, I mm -hmm. thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple more guests lined up for the future. Um, I know one of them. We have Dr. Khalid uh, El-Hakim. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Just make sure I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and he runs the Black History Mobile Museum, yeah. uh, which you guys should all go check out. Um, he's, there's a website. I believe it's, it's Black History Mobile Museum 101 or something like that. Um. Maybe just Black History Mobile Museum. No, I think it's uh, bh101mm. There it is. Dot com. bh101mm.com. So go check that out. Mm -hmm. We're looking forward to uh, talking to him about that and also celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop, which Absolutely. is this year. So we're, we're going to be doing an episode on that. Um, yeah. We might be asking for some, uh, some input from you guys on what your favorite hip hop albums, artists, songs all of it you know and yeah. how that's impacted you especially while you've been maybe here at pcc yeah yeah and and for our audience who may not be affiliated with uh pcc just you know you know just how hip-hop in and of itself has helped you navigate through life in general definitely and, um you know i mean it's 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 a beacon of hope for some and it's been a life's lifeline for others um you know, and I think it's definitely been uh, a messenger of the people, you yeah. know, uh, since its inception. And to me, that's what makes, you know, that that particular platform, genre of music so powerful. Definitely. You know? And, you know, as we talked about, as we alluded to in class a couple of times, you know, hip hop in and of itself has its own culture. And 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 to me, it the aspects of hip hop culture can definitely be help dismantle the ivory tower as well absolutely so absolutely and we will get into that absolutely i'm looking forward to it me too all right everybody we'll see you uh next episode peace everyone peace